Hello, everybody, and welcome to an exciting new episode of the Madam's Cast. Uh, we've moved from a weekly format to a monthly format. That's the only thing that's changed. Um, thanks for listening in. Please like and share, uh, and remember to download if you are listening, so that we get good numbers. Please, that would be great. This week is really exciting, or this month, should I say, is really exciting because whilst I'm sitting here sweltering in the heat wave, uh, the very lovely Sarah Pettigree is on the other end of the line with any luck, and she's been nominated to come and have a chat with me by the very nice uh, Tim Kinnard. So um, without any further ado, let's see if she's there. Sarah, are you there? I'm here. Oh, well, the technology is working anyway, which is a huge result. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for letting Tim ask you me. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I had a sort of quite a few predictions of things I was going to like about doing this project when I started doing it. And one that I massively overlooked was meeting new people. Um, mm. so, so thanks for being one of them. And hopefully this will go well. And you'll like me and we'll meet again at some point in the future. Yeah. Meet, meeting new people is not easy at the moment. So it's a real no, that's, bonus. That's true. That's true. And um, we're all finding new ways of, of socialising as well, mm. which is great. Um, right, Sarah, I know very little about you, apart from the fact that you are the go-to woman for pies and you have got a very sensible head on your shoulders in terms of food. Um can you fill me in on a little bit more background than that? Yeah, well, um, I make pork pies. We keep it simple. Nice, um, yeah. Which is part of my business head, I think. Uh, yeah, so I make pork pies uh, the way I like them, <laughs> which isn't well, necessarily traditional. Um, oh, describe I, one, describe one, describe one. Well, I grew up in the Midlands, um, yeah. and so there was a lot of pork pies for tea and all that sort of thing. Um, and I knew what I liked and didn't like about the ones that I used to have as a child. Um, so I sort of started again from scratch uh, with our pork pies. And uh, one of the things I love is flavour. So I kind of ramped up the old flavour situation. Uh, so there's, whereas a, say, a Melton Mowbray pork pie, I mean, there are other pork yep. pies in the UK, but say a Melton Mowbray one would mostly just be pepper and salt flavouring. I put in quite a wide range of herbs and spices in the basic mix, and sort of all kind of carefully balanced. So Is it's mace sort of, in there? No, but I can't tell you what is in there. No, I wasn't going to ask you what the <laughs> ingredient list was. I just thought I'd want... Cause there's, I'm, there's something I closely related to mace. Oh, oh, okay. I think I've got you. And I think a few of our listeners might have worked that out as well. Okay, but I'll keep, I'm not going to shout it out as a spoiler. Um, okay, carry on. What else? Yeah. Are you, presumably, um, you've got pork and pastry. Yes. So, yes, pastry. The pastry is uh, fairly uh, traditional. Um, I make it uh, to what was originally, uh, I've slightly adapted a Dan Leopard recipe. Because I don't come from uh, a food background. Um, you know, I've never been to catering college. I've never worked in anybody else's kitchen. Um, I was basically a home cook and uh, kind of created a business from that level. It was, I'd, I'd never really made a pork pie, um, but I kind of identified that there was a niche in the market, this go about 13 years, mm -hmm. for something uh, I, that wasn't traditional. 
So every butcher's shop, every prize-winning pork pie was all about. This is super traditional. We've been making it since 1863 or something. <laughs> um, and but also there was the real rubbish that uh, the story was. Um, some research was done that men bought uh, pork pies uh, and ate them on garage forecourts and then went home and didn't tell their wives that they'd done it. So there was that aspect of pork pies as well. Hang on a minute. Hang on. Hang on. People are ashamed of their pie eating. Yeah. Well, some pork, pork pies you should be ashamed of eating. Oh, well, I don't disagree with that. But <laughs> I, I, the very context of, of hiding what you eat from someone else, is that a thing? Yeah, of course it is. Is it? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Mm. Oh, so, okay. 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 Yeah, okay. Sorry. Sorry. That's just really okay. Carry on. <laughs> my brother does it all the time. <laughs> he's he's uh, got diabetes, and so he'll oh, eat things okay. he's not supposed to while he's out. So, is there an element here of of lying to oneself about what one's eating? Uh, I think it's an element of enjoying the naughtiness. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Oh, well, it's a bit hey, isn't it? I think I'd rather find out my partner had a pie habit than another man. <laughs> yeah. so I suppose, I suppose, in that terms, thing maybe it's a good thing. Or both. I, I don't think I've ever bought a, a decent pie at a petrol station. No, though. no, I can't think you probably would have done. No, no, yeah. no. Okay, so, so I'm giving a picture here. So there, there was the niche in the market. Um, basically for a sort of pie that uh, was very much about kind of family and celebration and taste and women. Uh, that women would be interested in and buy and uh, and obviously women were making it as well, which yeah. isn't necessarily that usual because they come from largely a kind of, if they're not the big commercial whacking great factories. The, uh, these days associated with butcher shops and although there are women butchers of course um, and very good ones um, you know, it has historically been a bit bloatish um, yeah that is true that is true there's been a, quite, quite a lot of industries that have been historically bloatish mm. it's probably held them back considerably uh, along the way but there we go that's p potentially something to jump into a bit later so okay so so describe your favorite pork pie that you're making at the moment to me so that I can envisage it in all its wondrous glory oh well the one that I always kind of like the ones we do seasonal ones um, oh. because they kind of crop up they are there all the time as kind of background um, yeah. I always like them when they're kind of new so in the spring we do wild garlic um, and in the summer, we do lemon, parsley and garlic. Nice. Nice. Mix. And it's nice and fresh and very picnicky. Yeah. Yeah. Chunks of pork as well as minced pork? Or? No, we do we do minced pork. We don't do the nice. chunks thing. There's no reason why not. Um, chunks of pork are very nice too, but we do actually. But it's very coarse, coarse yeah. minced. So you've still got kind of fibre of the meat in it, muscle in yeah, it yeah. Uh, we put some smoked bacon in as well um and we fill them by hand so all the ones that you buy in the supermarket say uh will have gone through mechanization because it's the only way they can do that mm. um and so the meat has to be ground to a, a sort of 
in a way that it will go through tubes and depositors and things like that. Yeah. Um, whereas ours isn't treated like that and uh, it's nicer texture. So I'm going to make a guess then that if that's how you do everything, that you apply that philosophy to your pork meat as well. So is that a local person? Yeah, yep. there's um, a chap at a, a village called South Creek, um, which is near us. And uh, his pigs are all outdoor pigs. Um, and then our local butcher does the actual, um, he makes lots of sausages and things. So to my space, I send across my herbs and spices to him. He doesn't know what's in the bucket. It's just a mix of stuff. Um, and we worked out the kind of proportions of everything um, and how we wanted it. And uh, so he, he actually makes it into the, the kind of minced. Pork. Well, I want a pork pie now. It's, it's that simple. <laughs> and, and I don't think any pork pie that I'm going to come across this afternoon is going to be good enough. So um, <laughs> I'm going to have to hop in the car and, and drive to North Norfolk and find you. It's quite a long way. Where, where You're in, down in the West Country, aren't you? Yeah, we're in yeah. East Devon here. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's all about oysters for me at the moment. Just oh, nice. Selling shucked oysters on the seafront at Lyme Regis with oh, a local fizzy wine. And yeah, it's got a few stumbling blocks, but we're working them out as we go along. As I've, we do, I've got things. some Dorset roots. Oh, yeah. oh hang, okay. Hang on, I thought you said you were from the Midlands. Yeah, that's where I grew up. Okay. But not trying uh, to catch you out. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit stateless. Um, my Great grandmother was born in a little cottage in a place called Chaldon Herring. Uh-huh. It's East Chaldon, which is near Winfrith, inland from no Lyme, inland from um, Lulworth. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I used to. So her, my great uncle uh, and great aunt uh, lived in her cottage, and I used to go down and spend a lot of holidays. There and it was magical. Oh, and yeah. Well, I think it. it sounds lovely and magical and brilliant and all of that stuff. And I think I could talk to you about it for a while, but, but that's um, not why we're here. <laughs> no, no. Well, although, you know, to be honest, that's up to us. True. Um, I would like to get your points from you, though. You're allowed three points for okay. things you'd like to change in the world of food. Before we go into that, though, I'm going to have to have this out with you right now. Yes, go on. I know what's coming. <laughs> There's no jelly in your pies. There's no jelly in the pies. I don't because like it. Because they're your pies and you get to make them the way you want to. I get yeah. that. Yeah, this, this is slightly going to go against my first point, actually, I just realised. <laughs> but um, that was... I used to go into... Uh, I used to have a music lesson in rugby uh, on Saturday morning. And... Um, Afterwards, my mum and I would go to the market and quite often get a pork pie, and they're great, quite big ones. And so I'd sort of eat the bits that I liked. And I liked the top of the pork pie because you kind of get stickiness on top. Um, and we'd usually eat most of the meat, um, but didn't necessarily want too much pastry, so I didn't want thick pastry. Um, and really wasn't that impressed with the jelly. So, and because we hand fillers, there isn't a gap. So when I very first started, I had it fixed in my head that I ought to put jelly in. And I sort of would put it in. You put it in at the end of baking after they come out of the oven and baked. And it just wouldn't go in because there was no room. 
And so I thought, well, that's silly, and I don't want it anyway. So just let's leave that. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of people, not you, but a lot of people, uh, are put off pork pies by the jelly. So if I have somebody come up to me at a farmer's market or something and say, I don't, especially women or younger people, say, um, I don't like pork pies, uh, then I say, I don't put any jelly in. Okay, that's why I don't like them. Give me a pork pie. I have had pork pies with jelly in where the jelly was really bad. Mm. And I've thought, oh, I wish they hadn't put that in because otherwise yeah. the pie is quite good. Um, so I'm all for jelly, but only if it's good. And as you say, if there's no room in your pie, I mean, what would you want it for, right? Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Well, that was good. That was that was less hostile than I thought it was going to be. Actually. <laughs> we got past <laughs> that one. We're still friends. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Um, although, yeah, now I really do want a pork pie now. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, what? Before we dive into the main bit, I've just wanted to go back to your man who's growing the pigs and ask you what variety of pigs he has. Just because I like pigs, that's all. I think they're Duroc. I don't think they're okay. uh, rare breed. I think they're no. they're just sort of uh, commercial pigs, probably with yeah. a few um, Hampshire thrown in. But they're outdoors. Oh, they're Hampshire in there yeah, as well. okay. yeah, but they're they're outdoors. I, nice. When we very first started, um, a friend had a small holding, and uh, we had our own pigs. So for a very short time, I was a pig farmer as well. Yeah, it's um it's something I've dabbled with. Yeah, um, and I, I like. Fun. I liked it, but we couldn't fulfil our own needs, so I had to buy elsewhere, and yeah. uh, it just, you know, you couldn't, I couldn't be both. It, it was too hard. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, it's not, I mean, there's nothing, I mean, that's business development, isn't it? You start yeah. out with an idea, and then the realities of the situation change, and you flex your product, and you end up slightly different from where you set out with a new set of objectives, and that's yeah. the fun bit, really. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm glad I did right. Oh, well, I bet you are. I bet you are. I mean, you are now the go-to pork pie lady. That's what I've been told. <laughs> That's what I've been and I have this on high, high authority. Okay, okay. Um, so uh, let's dive in. What, okay. What is the first thing that you would like to change about the world of food? Go. Right. So this is my character flaw, I think. I think it's this is me, not the rest of the world. But I get very annoyed by fussy eaters and don't like having just said that about jelly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, particularly people who say, oh, yuck, that's disgusting. And it just really annoys me. Um, I can remember once when I was in my previous life before I started being a pork pie maker um, and I used to work in various offices and it fell on me one year to organise a Christmas party. And I tried really hard to make it somewhere interesting, that it wasn't just chicken in a basket sort of thing, uh, somewhere nice. And I can remember a very good friend of mine um, who, there was a spinach leaf. And I can remember picking it up and examining it and going, ooh, yuck. And I just thought, it's a spinach leaf. You know, yeah. it's, it's not, doesn't taste of anything objectionable or anything. And I thought I'm never organising this party again. So it's it, that's I, I just have an intolerance of of uh, fussiness and uh, people who will say that perfectly good food is horrible or disgusting. Um, 
Did, yeah, it's it, just the language that they use and the yeah. way that they react that upsets you. Yes, I think it is that. Um, I don't understand it, I think, really. Um, I can remember some years ago, um, I was about to do a cookery demonstration in Port Plains, obviously, at a local festival. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was standing there with my other half watching the previous people. And the uh, compare was doing the old food heaven, food hell thing uh, with people, with people who were you know, doing each demonstration. And uh, so I was sort of rattling through, or what shall I say, mangoes maybe, something like that. And uh, then I thought, what's my food hell? What, what would I really object to eating? And I said to Derek, my other half, what's my food hell? And he said, I don't know. I don't know you've got one. So I scrubbed around. And then I, if I think about it hard enough, at that time, I'd never met a whelk I liked. And oh, okay. also yeah. uh, didn't care for cooked blue cheese. Didn't mind it on cheese board, but, or liked it on a cheese board. But I had a thing about cooked blue cheese. But even those, you know, I've sort of gone out of my way to try and get over those. And I found somebody who does really nice whelks locally in Western lately um, and learned to love those. And um, I've started cooking with blue cheese. So, you know, I I don't get the whole, I really dislike this flavour. There are things that I like better than other things, but I don't really understand it. Do you, I think you're lucky. do you have dislikes? No, I think I'm lucky too. I mean, I, I, I do. I have lots of things I dislike, like slovenly cookery and yes. you know, a poor attempt at putting together a meal. But in terms of actual flavours that I find offensive, very, I can't, off the top of my head, mm. I can't think of one. I really can't. No. Um, and I think you're I, right. We are lucky. It opens yeah. up a whole world of... I, I have I also you have people especially I notice this at farmers markets and things when I'm face to this is when I'm face to face with the public you have it in other scenarios but um you've also got the people who are kind of food fearful and I think if you like everything or don't you know have a, a great dislike of things you don't have that fear so you see something you haven't had before and you think oh, I want to have a go at that what's that like Whereas yeah. you get other people who haven't had it and therefore are unsure and a bit frightened of it. Yeah, and I, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I always think, I always worry that I'm gonna, that I'm being patronising or that I sound like a, you know, a, a bit of a idiot. But when I see people, like particularly when you go on holiday somewhere nice yes. and serving up like, you know, I don't know, you might be in Greece and they're just serving up this little pastry of baked cheese with a bit of honey on it or whatever. And you and you're just like, well, I'm going to eat that because that's what the, the locals are eating. It looks wicked. I'm going to try it yeah. and see what it is. And I've ordered three and they're all different. And I don't know what's inside any of them. And we'll have to see how that goes. And then you've got other people who just won't go in there. And yeah. they're clearly just going to go and find somewhere where they have photographs of the food on the wall so that they can order something they're more comfortable and familiar with. Yeah. Now, I don't know whether that's just me being like... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm being discriminatory against them. Yes, um, that's why I said just... it's my character flaw. You know that I don't, yeah. I don't understand okay. them, or I'm not being tolerant enough of their needs or something. 
Yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna join you. I've decided I'm I'm gonna join you. I'm yeah. a, I'm annoyed by fussy eaters too. Yeah. I don't understand <laughs> it. I think they're all wrong. I think they're missing out, and I think it, very often they're incredibly rude. There's yes. no excuse for being rude <laughs> at the table when someone else has cooked for you. Yeah. I'm not talking about a domestic situation yeah. here, rather oh, than God, a domestic no. situation. Yeah. There's not necessarily any reason to be rude then either. But it, you know, it is rude when people make a fuss about it. If you don't like something, quietly leave it to one side of your plate. Mm-hmm. Talk about something else. Offload it to your neighbour. Whatever it is that your particular favourite way of dealing with that situation is. But don't make a fuss about it. That's I've, just rude. I, I've I've never sent a meal back. I have occasionally had things and thought, ooh. Okay, not not going well here particularly, but I don't want to spoil. You know, I don't go out sort of every evening or whatever. So it's, you know, if we go out, I want it to be lovely for lots of reasons. <clears throat> and if there's a bit of it I'm not sort of wild about, then I'm not going to start sort of getting on my high horse. So I've never actually, I've never mastered this thing of what I hear other people do of sending food back. That seems a bit strange. There is the rare, there is the rare occasion where it's acceptable to send something back. But is I'm it? like you. I mean, I hardly go out, so I'm probably not qualified to, um, <laughs> to talk about it anymore. To be honest, uh, sort of a bit shy of the world these days. Um, okay, I, I, I'm. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because no, it's not. It's not because you've gone definitely. It's fussy eaters. It's got nothing to do with people who genuinely can't eat. No, no, of course not. It's just people who have got a funny way of reacting when they're challenged by something new. Mm. And also, I kind of understand there are a few people with different genetic components. So like my friend Hugh has an exceptional dislike of celery. And I suspect he's tasting something very different to what I taste because he's a foodie. He loves food. So, um, you know, I, I, I would very happily accommodate Hugh's problem with celery and the other classic one obviously is coriander um i yeah, can understand I mean, uh, that people some people are tasting something different to, although yeah. it took me a while to get to love coriander i must admit when and i think it's coriander one of those was a herbs, new thing i think it's one of those herbs that it has to be good it has to be grown slowly somewhere quite cool mm. i don't really like the stuff you buy in the supermarkets um if you have to because it, it doesn't really it's sort of a watered down sort of pale version it doesn't have the depth mm. um but i can see where people trip over coriander like i was smelling a bit of water mint that i picked the other day um i don't live in a sort of glorious rural idyll i mean it is lovely here but it's not like i'm constantly just you know whistling and singing with the birds and plucking oh i am are you room. not <laughs> well, I, I do sometimes it's just not i don't spend all my time doing that okay. but i picked some of this water mint and i and I love the smell of water mint when you've just picked it. But if you then crush it in your hands for a moment or two and smell it again and you can't smell kerosene mm. or diesel, then there's something wrong with your nasal capacity. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, like, it's interesting how that can go from one really nice flavour very quickly to something that's overpowering and unfortunate. Yeah. And, um Rock samphire does the same thing. You taste it and it's carrots. And then if you taste it again or have too much, it goes all diesily on you. Right. I, th- I don't think I've ever, because we're all marsh around here. So yeah. I'm very familiar with marsh samphire, but I don't know. Rock well, they're samphire, not even related. Right. They're, they're not even related. They just look vaguely similar. Yeah. So 
Um, I'll just point that out before I say brilliant points, brilliant point. I love number one. Um, I like it a lot, and I'm looking forward to what it sort of keeps having store for point number two, really. Um, are you feeling sort of like we might have done with point number yeah, two? Yeah, I think we're there. I think we're there. Okay. I think we've reached an understanding with the nation. We're now considering <laughs> their, their attitudes. Maybe. Towards coriander and celery yeah. and jelly or, and all sorts of other things. Yes, or us. <laughs> or us. Yeah, but the thing with the podcast, it's great. You can just turn it off and not yeah. listen. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, right. Okay. Don't do that, by the way, listeners. No, Don't do sorry. that. We need you. Um, and point number two, Sarah Pettigrew. Okay. What have you got? This one you might not like as much. Considering you... Okay. I, after I... After I thought of this one i kind of googled you uh i discovered you'd written the river cottage handbook called oh uh called game yes right. <laughs> and i'm increasingly not worried not happy with the game industry not the gaming industry but the game industry commercial shooting mm-hmm. you may um, find me less you may find me less contradictory here than you expected, by the way. So yeah. carry on. We're not going to have a real... <laughs> oh, I can point? pretend. I can pretend. I'll pretend. I'll pretend. No, I'm a conflict avoider. I'm very happy if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm right out on a limb with this one. Um, especially... Okay, okay, li- Say what you want. Yeah, living and working where I live, uh, there's uh, a lot of shoots and a lot of friends of mine shoot and beat and have uh, gun dogs and all that sort of thing and the landscape around here is uh, a lot of the time sort of partly set up for pheasants and all that and that can be you know really lovely um but the lowest estimate i could find was that 35 million pheasants are released each year in the uk and they're released. Uh, they're brought up, uh, they're farmed. Um, I don't know enough about it to say uh, how they're, what conditions they're reared in. But if there are 35 million of them being released in the UK, that is fairly industrial. And, yeah, it is. Um, I... My other interest, uh, my other kind of core passion for one of them, other than food, is nature, the environment, uh, ecology. And if you release 35 million ground feeders at one go, I can't think what that does to farm birds and other ground feeders, the insect population. Well, I can think what it does to it. It does it harm. And at a time when wild birds and things like that are struggling and the whole game industry tends to do other things. So like one of our local shoots, I know when they're going to have their first shoot because they're out with the hedge trimmers, making the hedges look like they've been topiary. Practically, they're so smart. I think it's quite an expensive shoot. They have quite smart people turn up. And so all, all the all the rosehips and blackberries and things like that that the migrant birds are coming in from 
Scandinavia expecting to find in Norfolk have just been chopped and on the ground. Yeah. And yeah. then there's, I don't know what gamekeepers get up to. I wouldn't like to say that they're doing anything wrong, but I know during lockdown, uh, when I walked my dog every morning, I saw gamekeepers out with guns and every morning I heard shooting and there was nobody else around but me and the dog. And I don't know whether what they were shooting was just a fox or a rabbit. Yeah, or a, or a crow, yeah. or a magpie, or a rook, or any of the other um, things are birds that they don't necessarily want nearby. Look, I, I, you know, right, I'm just going to very briefly respond in a cup with a couple of like sort of well rehearsed verses here. Okay? okay. First and foremost, I agree. That's a huge volume of non-indigenous birds to be released into uh, into the woodland, uh, and you wouldn't want to be a common lizard living anywhere near a forest full of uh, full of large ground dwelling, um, uh, you know, birds. That's that's true. There's no doubt that there are negative impacts from releasing pheasants. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there are also quite a lot of positive uh, net gains uh, from managing ground for shooting. Uh, and I'm not saying that the one outweighs the other. I think it's worth having the conversation yeah. and the conversation is ongoing and the organisations who look after shooting and the organisations who look after conservation and the ones that just plain hate shooting have are having lots of, these days, reasonably grown up conversations about, about lots of the subjects involved. Not all of them uh, as free of conflict as perhaps they ought to be, but, um, but they're, you know, they're getting there. Uh, and I'm certainly not going to say that if you didn't have shooting, every piece of woodland would be cut down and drilled for wheat because that wouldn't happen either. But I no. think a lot of the diversity of habitat that you find on a lot of ground is partly there because it pays to have it there. It's useful for the shoot, right? Yeah. So there's Oxygen a bit of that. Things, yeah. yeah. And then there's also the sort of... <clears throat> The habitat conservation work that goes into play, into play, the predator reduction, uh, you know, is quite significant. So a lot, a lot of other birds benefit from the ground being keepered uh, for for pheasant and indeed partridge shooting. But I absolutely agree that, you know, and my my angle on it's slightly different. I love I love shooting, uh, and I love eating a, a myriad of things that are dead, and I always like to think that i do that as ethically as possible mm. um and, and i i'm sort of in the process of setting up a business sort of working on a slightly different model of shooting where we shoot an awful lot less in a day um and, and it's all about having a nice day out with your friends which is sort of what it should be about yeah. anyway rather than how many birds are shot and then ultimately ensuring that every bird that is shot goes straight into the food chain if it's unacceptable. Yeah, that, that was my other point that, um, you know, of those 35 million, that's a, a that's just pheasants, that's not including partridges. Um, you know, that's a, a, a pheasant between every couple of people well, in if the we country. Were, I think, and that, yeah. people, I'm eating that many. I love eating. I love eating. You know, this winter I ate pheasant and I ate partridge and um, I ate rabbit. I've stopped eating hair, um, but um, yeah, because I just can't because they're too fabulous, and the more hair, the better, sort of thing. Um, 
I, I was actually, uh, years ago, I didn't eat meat. Um, I was a, a bad vegetarian um, in that um, I ate fish. Um, oh, okay. I, I, chose yeah. not, I chose not to eat farmed meat because I could. And I like uh, you know, vegetable type things and things like that. Mm-hmm. So for about a decade, um, I didn't eat meat. Then we went to front, we went to Dordogne on the holiday for a fortnight, and um, being a greedy guts, I couldn't sustain it there. So I used to eat meat uh, when I was abroad. Was my version of vegetarian in the UK, um, and then I sort of slid a little uh, and decided that I would eat game in the UK. Because at that time I knew less about it, and I was, you know, I was living in Norwich then. I wasn't living sort of in the middle of shooting country, um, and I imagined that what I was eating was wild food that had, you know, grown up wild and lived wild and all the rest of it. Um, and now I realise that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, so, you know, I, I I do eat game and I do love it. Um, but I hate the fact that I'm not quite sure what happens to all the pheasants and partridges that are shot that aren't eaten because you know, most of them don't go to butchers uh, to be sold. But yeah. I, you know, it's, a, it's a horrible, it's a horrible waste. Well, and it's just, it's just, you know, it's morally inexcusable, isn't it? Yeah. It's as simple as that. Um, and I, I, I completely, you know, do you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm not that well loved in the world of shooting because mm. i am quite outspoken and um i actually don't have an issue with people shooting 400 birds in a day provided that those birds are then you know looked after and used i, I you know that's that's up to them to that degree but i genuinely believe that if we want to have a future for shooting in our countryside we need to improve it and develop it and take a long hard look at it and set a new example mm. of of how that should be and some of that is more of a return to older ways because actually the commercialization of shooting if you want to call it that hasn't been around for that long um no it's, it's really rough very to much it. yeah these are very much new problems but and until then um <laughs> i try not to upset too many people but until then i mean oh, you, come you on. know <laughs> absolutely eat, eat as many you know pigeon uh, wild deer, rabbit as well. Maybe not. Well, no, uh, rabbit hair. If you don't find it offensive and it's come from a place where there's plenty of them, you know, eat those. Uh, no problem at all. Pheasant and partridge. Make sure you know where they've come from. Find out where the shoot is. You know, make sure you know the story. But that I apply to everything you eat. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm with you. I, I'm more with you than than you might have thought. So what? So yeah. what should we call point number two? Because I'm a bit. Uh- I, I call it the game industry, as in the industrialization of game. Okay. Commercial. Nice. Like it. Okay. Um, wow. What else can I say on that one? Not a lot. I think we're we're pretty much there, and you're you're absolutely more than entitled to make any point that you like while you're here. <laughs> you're very kind that's, that's the thing i mean I, you know it's no good if everyone just comes on here and is nice to me i mean all i want to hear is what people think because that's what's helpful we don't get anywhere if we don't hear about it so i think that's good 
Um, I would encourage you not to write it off. I, I would encourage you to to go and talk to some people and find out more about yes. what's going on next because it might change your mind in some ways, but it's certainly far from perfect. Yeah, I mean, um, if, if I do see, you know, um, one of my major culinary successes last year was a roadkill pheasant, actually. But if I see, you know, partridges and things, I've got a very good uh, partridge recipe, which is kind of an adaption of the Nigel Slater recipe um, that I like to do every winter. And so, you know, if I see game in the butchers, I'd buy it if it looks nice, uh, because... The poor little blighters are already dead. I'm not going to help them now. Um, and, you know, I buying them from the butch. I t- one other thing. Um, a couple of years ago, I was showing some people around Pi HQ, who'd uh, won it in an auction of promises um, of, of the morning at HQ. And uh, one of them was a game journalist, it turned out. Um, okay. And he said to me... Um, why don't you make game pies? And I knew he was a game journalist and he was a guest, you know. I didn't want to start having a stand-up. And <laughs> this wasn't how I was brought up. And uh, he said, you know, they they would give you uh, game. You could have it for free. And I said, well, that's the problem, isn't it? You know, and I'm, I'm not happy. But I basically did a sort of quickened version of what we've just been talking about. Yeah. Well, and I thought he was, true. and I thought he was going to come back at me, and he didn't. No, well, I, I disagree with him anyway, and respectfully, whoever he was, because if you want it, I mean, you're running a pie shop, right? You're you're making, you've got a yeah, clean got a environment shop. there. You're, yeah, you've got all of your. Sorry, I, I, I was looking for a better word than factory. Kitchen. I call it kitchen. That is a factory. Don't you dare call it. You run a nice pie kitchen. Exactly. And. You know, you don't want feathery stuff there, right? No. So that means that it's got to go to a game dealer yes. by law, basically, to be processed before it can come to you. Well, they're not going to do that for nothing. No, no. It <laughs> it's really likely. expensive. Yeah. Really expensive to handle. You know, yes. so I genuinely think he was a wrong. I mean, I'm not. I'm going to bang on about myself for a second. So I'm involved with a charity called the Country Food Trust. Very right. soon, we will have raised two million pounds and fed 1.5 million people in need using the produce of the British countryside. Um, we've done that, some of that with pheasant, some of that with partridge, and a lot with venison. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we know, I am in the position perhaps where I know an awful lot more about the game processing industry than perhaps I ever wanted to know in my life. Um, and there's, it's really expensive to handle. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not slaughtered in a slaughterhouse. It's got lots of damage. A lot of the birds you know, it can't be used complete. Um, It's got lead in it, you know, I mean, that's a bit of a hazard. Mm. So, and that is one that the industry are working on quite hard at the moment. So I I don't think it will be very long before no one's shooting anything with lead, but I mean, not before time. Um, You know, so, so um, yeah, it's, yeah. Anyway, that's where, that's where I am with that. I don't think he was right. No, (laughs) I've I've made uh, in the past a squirrel pie. Because sometimes oh, squirrel, squirrel turns I up. Love a tree rat. Yes, and uh, I always say they're like a fit rabbit, slightly nattier. Um, so I, I have uh, bought uh, squirrels from uh, our game butcher in Holt um, and made a pie. And people have said, "Why don't you do that?" You know, be, yeah. But for God's sake, they're so bloody fiddly. They are. They you'd are. Never, you'd never do fifty. 
no, no. <laughs> really, that'd be heartbreakingly hard work. Um, so, yeah, because I, you know, grey squirrels, non-Indigenous, so yeah. I'm yeah. fine with it. And the other thing I love, my favourite meat, possibly, I like pigeon as well, but my favourite meat is uh, muntjac. And again, oh. they're so little that yeah. you would you wouldn't you wouldn't want to sort of you know do it on a commercial basis. But I have uh, before now sourced muntjacs, and one of my local butchers has um, uh, made it into a, a, a roasting joint and also minced the rest. And minced yeah. muntjac is just the nice a muntjac lasagna. <gasps> oh. Yes, Munchak is a delicious deer. Chinese water deer is a delicious deer. Roe deer is a delicious deer. Seeker is amazing. Red, I'm not quite so keen on, but mm. it has its it has its champions. Yeah, to be quite careful with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fallow, I'm, not, I'm not quite so hot on fallow either, but everyone will scream at me about that, so I'll, I'll not mention it on mm. the on the podcast. Oh, whoops! I've, <laughs> I've just <laughs> meant never mind. No one listens anyway. It'll be fine. So. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, anything really, I mean, like, right. So, so this is my thing. Grey squirrel, pigeon, uh, roe deer, muntjac, Chinese, anything, right. There's a kind of extra, even if you're, even if you're vegetarian or vegan, those animals are going to end up getting shot because they're shot for environmental protection reasons in terms of protecting crops or protecting a native species or whatever. So to not eat that meat, Okay, is then the most unethical decision you yeah. could possibly make, right? Um, except on religious grounds, all right, which we always have to have a caveat for, but that's fine. Right, okay, brilliant. So we've got, I've written down, doesn't like the game industry. Yeah. Which is not quite the same as not liking game. And I'm I'm happy to stick that in there. Not that I wouldn't have accepted it as a point anyway. <laughs> it's your point, you're entitled to it. And I could have been sacked. <laughs> <laughs> oh there seems to be something wrong with the connection uh bye never darken my podcast again <laughs> no uh, well i'm trying to talk you into you know do you do pies by post yes oh we'll, we'll do that later we'll find out about that later <laughs> okay, okay okay um so uh brilliant we've i think we've negotiated that i think it was probably more awkward for me than you but we've negotiated it well yeah. what's what's your third and final point okay this one i don't think you'll have any problem with um it's and and i was really racking my brains because um i wanted to say because i've heard other people in the podcasts telling you all the things that they're not going to choose so they can choose half a dozen things (laughs) (laughs) i spotted this yes i spotted it too but i can't stop the blighters no so um the obvious one was uh around education of people about cooking skills and nutrition yeah. and health and all that but everybody else has said that and better than I would probably so I thought okay um, that's obvious that's that's so blindingly obvious we'll walk past it um, so it's fear of pressure cookers oh <laughs> well you know, I did not see that coming. You okay. didn't see that coming. Okay. Any, anybody who, who knows me well, or possibly even in passing, would go, oh, right, she's off again. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what, it's interesting because I, until I watched 
to MasterChef a couple of years ago, I hadn't realised that pressure cookers had made a comeback. I thought they were something that had been consigned to the. Now that's partly time. due to me. <laughs> that's due to me. right. Okay, okay. Right. That, I'm going to start. Is, your that is hyperbole. So. Such an exaggeration. Okay, right. So, um, growing up, my mum uh, was a brilliant cook and um, a, in the best possible sense, a greedy woman in the same way that I am. Uh, she loved food and she loved cooking and you know, we always experimenting and things. And she had a rattly old pressure cooker which occasionally would get dragged out for doing something like beans or stock or something like that. Um, and None of us were terribly keen on it. And uh, when I kind of left home and, as it were, set up my own domestically speaking kitchen, um, I got a pressure cooker and it was a similar sort of horrible, hissy, slightly scary thing. And I didn't like it. And all I ever did was things that I felt, you know, I just had to, otherwise they'd take forever, like beans or whatever. Um, and uh, it hardly got used. And was not loved and it got a kind of domed bottom eventually um which is never going to work well so i i did i i didn't love a pressure cooker i hated a pressure cooker and then catherine phipps happened do you know catherine phipps no okay well do okay she is um a cookery writer uh she's a bit like me in that she started off uh in a different world I think she was a lawyer or something. Um, and uh, she is just absolute. She's a friend of Mark Diacono. Uh, oh, okay. So they, they sort of run together, you know, cookie book wise. Uh, she had one out uh, this year, this year, last year, uh, called Leaf. She's had another one called Citrus. But back in two, yeah, you will have come across her. Uh, Yeah, 2012, I've got it in front of me. She uh, published a book on called The Pressure Cooker Cookbook. Uh, And she is a brilliant cook. And we've also got a kind of joint history uh, that we've got uh, associations, hers stronger than mine, with Dominica in the Caribbean. her husband's family, uh, Pakistani. Um, okay. So she's, uh, and she lives in London. She oh, Another connection I have with her is that she lived in, in Norfolk for quite a while. So, you know, we've got all these weird places where we didn't know each other, but we sort of realised that we've got this similar kind of parallel thing going on. And uh, she wrote the Fresh Cookbook, cookbook. That was her first cookbook. And it's... Uh, it, I wouldn't want to upset Catherine by saying this. It's not the stylized, most beautiful cookbook that you kind of her subsequent ones were, um, which are beautiful. But she was on Twitter at the time, and Twitter in 2012 was a very different, much more chatty place than it is yeah, now. Yeah, it was, it was, and you was. made lots of, I made lots of friends that way, and Catherine was already one of them. And then she brought out this pressure cooker book. And so I sort of took a support of interest and bought the book. And she was so persuasive about pressure cookers. And I said, I don't really understand what's going on here, but I'll go with it. And uh, basically, I bought a good pressure cooker. And a good pressure cooker in my book really is a WMF pressure cooker, which is a German 
pressure cooker. Uh, so you got a new pressure cooker and now you're a massive fan of pressure cooking? Yes. Um, I, I I suddenly realised because of Catherine's book what interesting food I could do in it. And um, one of her sort of, you know, things that tends to win people over is cooking a risotto in a pressure mm-hmm. cooker. Um, I've cooked a lot of dals uh, in my pressure cooker. But she's also got things like rose petal jam cooked in a pressure And so suddenly my, my vision of pressure cooking uh, wasn't that everything had to be brown and stewy. You could cook yeah. rose petals in a pressure cooker. And hang, on. hang on. Just go back a sec. Go back a sec. How okay. do you make a risotto in a pressure cooker? Because you have to keep stirring that. No, you don't. Oh. Huh? No. Oh. Oh, all right. There you go. I shall throw away my collection of risotto spoons and yeah. uh, get, get a, Catherine's get a pressure, cooker. pressure cooker. Okay, book. right. Sorry, rose petals. Yeah. I'm on it. Yeah, and obviously she's got okay. uh, Caribbean recipes in here. There's an amazing recipe uh, which is kind of precursor to her citrus book, actually, which is lamb. And I, she uses you know decent lamb. I, I just use neck of lamb. Because I like bone in neck of lamb because you're also getting that stock element from the oh, bones. Um, the and, and she and she cooks it with coriander and orange and potatoes. It's uh, Peruvian, I think. And so that's what... And, and all these things are kind of come home from work, bit shattered, get on it, happens fast. For things that otherwise would take hours. Um, I've got... Uh, do you know Mimi A.? No, I'm beginning to feel that I don't know anything. Okay. But, uh, she's she's, same... she's Burmese, and again, oh, okay. uh, another, oh, her family are Burmese. Um, uh, she's British, um, and uh, she's written a book called Living Out. What's that book called? Mandalay. And uh, she's uh, so she's got a, a, a pork, a traditional Burmese pork curry in there, which is actually really simple. Really delicious, really simple, but takes some hours to cook. So I thought, right, I'll adapt that and put that in my pressure cooker. So now it's a sort of come home from work, let's have a Burmese curry. <laughs> and I'm not a gadget person, but having said that, I just bought a rice cooker. Have you got a rice cooker? No, no, oh, I haven't got one of those either. Heaven's sakes, Tim, get a rice cooker. I oh, just love, love this thing. I, I'm a real kind of, you know, pride myself on being a kind of Elizabeth David cook. You know, I have a wooden spoon and a knife and that sort yeah. of is it. But I do have a pressure cooker. And I now have a rice cooker, which Mimi got me on to. And it's, um, it's a two-person one uh, and it costs sort of about 20 quid or so. But honestly, it's transformative. I can't, can't recommend it enough. I can cook basmati rice. But I don't have to. <laughs> it does, does it all. even better than I can. Excellent. Even better, <laughs> she said, slightly big-headedly. So yeah, so, so but so coming back to the point of people, what I would like to change is people having a fear of pressure cookers. Because you mentioned pressure cookers, and a lot of times people go back to the place that I was at, thinking that they're dangerous and they blow up. Actually, I don't think they really do blow up, but they're you know they're hissy and nasty and noisy and unpredictable, and I can go with that. But if you get a really good pressure cook, cooker, and Catherine's book, um, then you know 
you're you're selling. And I had I um before lockdown, very much just before lockdown, we really got away with this with the skin of our teeth, as it turned out. Um, we uh, my friend Jane and I had a cookery writer evening. Jane's got a nice kitchen with an island, and then a kind of mm-hmm. a, a, a kind of conservatory room that goes off it. So it actually makes a brilliant cookery theatre. We realised. So Catherine came to Norfolk. We called it Cookery Writers Come to Norfolk. We only had to do one because of living lockdown. Uh, and uh, we had 14 people there, um, I think all of whom didn't know pressure cookers but were interested in food. And Catherine did a demonstration and we all ate the food that Catherine made. Yeah. Um, and uh, we converted 14 more people in Norfolk about pressure cookers, and they all ran off dutifully and bought WMF pressure cookers and are now <laughs> cooing on Twitter every time they do a lovely pressure cooker meal because they're so astounded about how it has changed their life. And I've got, um, I've got a larger, pressure, you know, normal sort of size pressure cooker, which tends to be quite big, uh, but I've also got a half size pressure cooker. And that's brilliant. It's sort of like saucepan height. Uh, am I looking at stop, about five inches? Stop. I can't afford. I can't afford to buy any more things now. Stop. Don't <laughs> talk about the, pre- stop, the rice cooker is only twenty quid. The WMF pressure cookers are quite expensive. They do deals quite often on Amazon. Um, I told a little tiny lie when I said I didn't have a pressure cooker. Okay. Because you've I got a really rotten old one, have you? I've got a simple stainless steel one with a clamp on lid that you char, you know, you stick it on the stove and away you go. Um, but I've only ever used it for sterilizing substrate for growing uh, mushrooms on. As you do. As you, well, as you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I grow a few oyster mushrooms and shiitake mushrooms and things like that. It's a hobby, right? Yeah. It's just a hobby. I'm not a, an expert in mycology, but I like doing it. It's fun. Um, and you end up with delicious mushrooms if it goes right. If it goes wrong, you end up with loads of mould and a disaster and you have to sort of cough politely and leave. But I have got a pressure cooker, so maybe I should get it down. Get Catherine's book. Get Emily Go on it. Yeah, yeah, Catherine Phipps, the pressure cooker book, cookbook. All right. Now, are you using point three to, no. to carefully preload <laughs> no. your choice so that you've already recommended other books? Because, you know, that would cause some problems if you were doing that. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, rumbled. Okay, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. You see, I thought this all through quite carefully, though, haven't I? You have, you really have. Um, so Sarah Pettigrew, yes, annoyed by fussy eaters, yes. doesn't like the game industry, no, and had a fear of pressure cookers, but you have no longer a fear. Of pressure and I want the world to, to yeah. be, join me on my journey through pressure cooker happiness. I'm coming. I'm coming. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Um, brilliant. What a, what a fantastic chat. And what Is that a great, all right? Yeah, it was brilliant. <laughs> what do you mean, was that all right? It was great. It's not I very often I'm, I'm stumped for something to say. And a couple of times I thought, well, you've just nailed it. There's nothing for me to add, really. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite nice. Um, I like that a lot. And there's a lot there to sort of go through and unpick and think about. Um, which is nice because I do, you know, I listen to these back, which is slightly odd listening to yourself. Um, but it's quite good listening to, to what everyone else says. And you always pick up something new from it when you listen to it a second time. So thanks for taking part in that first sort of the main part of the broadcast is now finished, obviously. But we've got a few tasks left for you before we say cheerio. Mm-hmm. You have to pick 
a cookery book that you would have on your own personal desert island, whatever scenario that might be, a drink that you'd like to drink whilst you're perusing the cookery book, and you're allowed to nominate somebody else to come on mm. the Madam's cast and, um, and baffle me. Okay. So, cookery book first? Yeah, please, if you like. Yeah. Well, obviously this was difficult. <laughs> it is difficult. It is difficult. <laughs> because there's some bloody wonderful ones in my life. Like Mira Soda's vegetarian Indian books. Actually, her first uh -huh. one isn't vegetarian, but her second one is. Um, Are you picking you know, that one? Or is, or is this no, I don't, no, this is just, just chatting to you, Tim. <laughs> Do you know Mira okay. Soda's cookery books made in India and fresh India? I have seen them, actually, yeah. yes. Yeah. They're very good. But they're not, they're, they're not they're, as it turns out, they weren't it. And oh, okay. for, I feel like I ought to mention everything on my bookshelf because I'm feeling disloyal to all my loved cookbooks. But no, you don't. It, the caveats are out there. You're not, it's not, it's not anything against any of the others. It's mm. just a on the spot decision. Choose one, done. Tim, shall we do, shall we start our own podcast? And shall we do yeah. it jointly? And shall we call it Desert Island Cookbooks? And then people can come on and they can rattle through. Well, we'll limit them, but they can rattle through 10 or 12 and it won't be so painful. Yes. Okay, yes. right. And then we'll I'll go into detail about the recipes. We can do that. I don't okay. mind okay. doing that. I'll give you two hours a month of my time to put that together. I'm yeah. up for it. Okay, right. Right. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so I, when I read a novel, I like a landscape. Um, the one I'm reading at the moment is uh, Island for Dreamers, I think it's called, and it's about Hydra at the time that Leonard Cohen lived there. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's the best book in the world in a literary sense, but God, the landscape's beautiful in it. So, uh, has it got Leonard Cohen in it? Is he mentioned? Yes. Yeah, oh. uh, it's a lot of people who actually literally were that. Polly Sampson's the writer, and she's done a lot of research just... and. Uh, yeah, it's it's re it's really conjures the best pictures in your head, and it's a lot of food learned, in it as well. I've just learned to play "Who by Fire" on the guitar, which is very exciting. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're a fan of Mr. Cohen's work, but I am. I'm totally, totally, totally digressed. Tell me, tell yeah. me what. So, so anyway, yeah. So, I like, so I like a landscape, and I was thinking about that because I'm re reading this book at the moment. That's what I really love, and obviously, lots of cookbooks do that. But the one that really gets me in terms of transporting me to a place that I love and is one of the places that I feel most grounded in the world and can't get to at the moment, obviously. Um, and that's Elizabeth David's French Provincial Cookery. It's a great book. And, you know, you're just there in Provence, aren't you? Mm -hmm. And that's... Oh. And that's if, if I only had one cookbook, apart from it being a very good cookbook, and not used enough, I haven't used it enough, I haven't cooked enough things from it properly. But, you know, I can sit and read it from cover to cover and then go back to the beginning again, and I'll be in France, and it'd be lovely. Nice. So that's my yeah. cookbook. Well, that's the, so, okay, so, well, then it's going to be a glass of rosé, isn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, yes, thank you for offering. I'll, I'll, I'll take a glass of rosé from you. That's very kind. <laughs> but that's not my Desert Island um, drink. And okay. 
I know that everybody else has said this, but it's a cup of tea. Do you know what? I am, and as I've said this to everybody else, I'm so with you. I couldn't live without tea. I just couldn't. Another book. Have you come across Alan Jenkins' book, Morning? No. Alan Jenkins being the editor of uh, Guardian Food Monthly, Observer Food Monthly. I should have known that, shouldn't I? Yeah. Um, yeah. But this is a slightly different context. He, like me, is an early riser. And so we quite often sort of bump into each other on Twitter or Instagram um, in the early hours of the morning. So, you know, this time of year, I, I love getting up at five o'clock and having my house to myself and all that sort of thing. And that's, that's his thing too. We're both larks. And he's written a book called Morning and it really beautifully conjures morning. And there is nothing that would possibly persuade me in this whole world apart from maybe Hugh Grant, to give up my first cup of tea of the morning. Because the morning's so important to me and that cup of tea in the morning on my own yeah. is so important. Yeah. yeah. Well, and not even for me important for myself, but if I fail to make tea for the very important woman in my life, yes. <laughs> then, then that is the end of the world, effectively. So... <laughs> Uh, so that would that would that would in and of itself mean it needed to be my desert island drink that's for sure yeah. so uh, you're very welcome to have tea and and it's quite nice to have a cup of tea while you're looking at a cookery book actually yes there's there's, there's hardly a bad time to have a cup well of tea. that's true that is true when you're dancing it can be quite difficult i'm having some friends around tomorrow uh, to the garden and we're going to sit outside and they're going to bring their own mugs and we're going I'm going to make a cup of tea in a pot so that nice. you know it's all kind of so socially distanced yeah, but yeah. you know it's a cup of tea and that's kind of so important and central culturally to us British well yeah obviously other cultures as well but and then there's the whole horror story of why we like tea so much we won't go there but um you know just just as you know as a kind of it's it's so down the center of us like a stick of black bullock isn't it too yeah it seems to be and it came to me quite late i was quite a late arriver oh. at tea i didn't arrive at tea early tea came to me in my 30s wow i know weird eh yeah <laughs> i was i was late to coffee <laughs> You're supposed to say, no, you're not weird, Tim. No, that is odd. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> but I was late to coffee. Oh, oh, okay. Even later than you, actually. Well, I think that was professional kitchens knackered me for coffee because, you know, within two years of being a underling chef at the beginning of your career, if you're not nailing 14 shots of espresso a day, you're not working. It's that yeah. simple. Mm. Hopefully we're moving towards a world where that's no longer true. But... Mm. Um, so certainly coffee was my go-to drink for a very long time. And now I try mostly to avoid it because it sort of has quite a negative long-term yeah. impact. Yeah, I, 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 I made myself learn about coffee. And luckily, one of my very good friends uh, at the time had a coffee roastery. So he was a big help in that direction. Um, and uh, so, you know, he, he gently led me through coffee. And I learned to love it, and I still do love it. But um, 
I'm very interested in sleep. Good quality yes. sleep. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, yeah, sleep is a, it's a funny one, isn't it? But people, mm. I think, you know, I certainly wish that I hadn't missed so much of it yes. in my life. Um, and I'm trying to make up for it a little bit mm. now. And it's something we've really focused on with our children. To yes. Make sure they can sleep. Yeah. Anyway, right. Nomination, please. Okay, right. You're going to have as a nomination, and she doesn't know this, so as Miss Dr. Kinnaird did to me, I'm going to do to her, uh, is um, a wonderful woman and a very good friend of mine called Jane Stewart. Now, Jane has just recently been awarded the certification, if you like, for having the national or a national collection of meddlers. Oh. Yeah. Again, you didn't see that coming, did you? I, uh, monkeys' bottoms. Dogs' asses. That's it. <laughs> I can remember if it was donkeys or, or uh, dogs. Or... I think it all, they probably all have very similar meddler-like it's rear ends. Line, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I, I've been, for a long time, before I even knew Jane, um, a fan of meddlers i just like the whole historicness of them and i like the flavor i think they're sort of like toffee apples a bit yeah i like anything that's got a can of caramelly note to it and a meddler has a caramelly note um and i like the fact they're unusual <laughs> bless them so uh so yeah so anybody who's not familiar with meddlers um they're a fruit that grows on trees like apples or pears uh from the middle east originally i think and they were a great source of sugar in Britain before sugar became available to people. Uh, and you have to bleck them. Anyway, she can tell you more about them. Uh, well, I mean, and so she, yeah, so she set herself a challenge to revive the meddler. And she makes meddler products. So she makes meddler jelly and meddler uh, cheese and chutney. And she's just embarking with another friend of mine, um, Jonathan, who makes Norfolk gin. Uh, they're going to make, and I've had sort of uh, early days trials of this thing, luckily for me. And Medler gin is amazing. Well, and listeners, you heard it here first. It's yeah. another global exclusive for the Madam's cast. Um, Sarah Pedigree, thank you. So I just much. want to say one other thing about Jane. Um, no. I, yes, Wait, I got to. Hang on. I got to. No, Tell me more about Jane. I just have to say that she has been an absolute brick during BRICK. <laughs> She's been a wonder during lockdown because uh, we fellowed all our staff and Derek, my partner, and I were doing everything at work. And it got manically busy. And we make these celebration pies with letterings on. And we were at breaking point and Jane said, can I cut the letters out for you at home? And we were doing like a hundred celebration pies a week. And they all have things like happy birthday, Gertrude. And, yeah. and so Jane throughout a couple of months of lockdown was every, twice a week driving over to HQ with trays of letters for us. So we didn't have to cut out the letters and it was one jobless for us and she did that out of the kindness of her heart so she deserves the medal and she deserves the opportunity to have as much fun with you as i have well i 
I can't wait to. I, well, she hasn't agreed to come on, and you're springing this on her, so you <laughs> have to wait. We will. People don't want to come on. But um, if, if I know Jane, <laughs> if you're out there and you want to come on, I'm very happy to have you on. Apart from anything else, I want to know how tempted you were to swap the letters round. <laughs> so uh, uh, we'll find out about that a bit later. Um, Sarah Pettigree, am I allowed to? Am I allowed to wrap up now? You may. Okay, right. So I'm. Um, Sarah Pettigree, thank you very, very much for coming on the Madam's Cast. Uh, a, a very slight technical hitch in the middle, but nothing we can't fix going onwards. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Well, Tim Madams, I now consider you one of my friends. And thank you very much. I've really, really enjoyed it. Excellent. And if we want to find you in the digital world, how easy is that? And where do we do it? Very easy. Just Google Bray's Cottage Pork Pies or pretty much Norfolk Pork Pies or anything combination like that in the spring and um on twitter i'm braise let's be like the donkey braise braise underscore cottage um twitter is my main social media thing really okay at braise cottage well i'm gonna i'm gonna tap you up and follow you that's for sure I do my boy um, <laughs> <laughs> i might create myself a new twitter profile something like jelly warrior or I'll look out for it. I'll spot it. Fantastic. Okay. Well, listen, Sarah, I've had absolutely, I can't believe that we've got through, you know, well over an hour already. Um, And I could stay here chatting to you all day, but I can't. I've got furious children. And a puppy. And a puppy. Yeah, a small yellow Labrador puppy who's just joined the family, which is very exciting. Well, thank you. So I better better go and look after Percy as well. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks. I look forward to seeing you in real world at some point yeah. as soon as I can. Yeah, lovely. Okay, Fantastic. Thanks. All right, cheerio.